Well, good morning, our listening audience. This is uh, episode 26 of the Tracking Our History uh, with the United States Marine Corps Vietnam Tankers Association. Today's guest is one of our most noted authors, Robert Peavy. And I think we're going to begin with having Bob tell us about the time the, the time that he served in Vietnam. So, Bob, welcome aboard. And can you start with uh, your time in country? Certainly. Um, I, land, I came into country in February of 1968 and left in March of 1969. Um, what was unusual was... At the time that I went through tank school, now this would be 1960, late 1966, mm -hmm. the school was feeding Vietnam uh, with tankers that were in need. Mm -hmm. But there was a small group in our class that was assigned to 5th Tank Battalion, which was just forming in Pendleton. It was forming at the same time the 27th Marines were forming. Oh, okay. So I was there for a year before going over, and that was kind of unusual if, unless you were a, a lifer that, that's, that did more than one tour, mm -hmm. or not tour, but made a life in the Marine Corps. Okay. Then in February of 68, the Tet Offensive started, and suddenly there was need for a unit to come in if if they had one, which they didn't, uh, some something had to be done to come in and, and try to plug the gap. In, v in this is in Vietnam. Right. So the 27th Marines, which is a, a regiment and an infantry unit, didn't have very many bodies to make up the unit. And true to Marine Corps history and and uh pride the first the first rule of a marine of a u.s marine and his job is you are a rifleman first yeah. Yeah. no matter where you went whether you were uh, working on helicopters or in tanks you were first primary job was a rifleman yeah. and it never showed in the war like it did at this moment because they started pulling people from all over Camp Pendleton, cooks, uh, military police, uh, Amtrak people, uh, anything you can think of job-wise were thrown together to make up the 27th Marines. Wow. While this was going on, I was in NCO school. And on the last day, it was, it was kind of scary because on the last day, we were in a Quonset hut that had a screen door and we're sitting there and the school is made up of people from all units all over Pendleton. I think there were about 50 of us for this class. And the screen door comes flying open and slammed, shut, slammed like a screen door does. And in comes the Sergeant Major. And he has a clipboard and he just starts reading names. I think he read about 25 names or 30 and they were, he, they were all told report back to your units immediately and uh, waste no time. And 
he walks out. All these people, we're all looking at each other, not understanding what's going on. And these guys all left. Half hour later, in comes the guy again. He names like 10 names. And some of the guys we knew and would, uh, we, we all realized, oh, those, these guys are all uh, cannon cockers or artillerymen. Right. And they're told to go back to their unit. 20 minutes later, again, the screen door flies open. And all these men are actually going to make up the 27th Marines uh, or, or as part of them. Right. Well, a day later, they're gone. They have flown to Vietnam as a combat unit that has never operated together. These people don't know each other. Oh uh, it, it was a real hodgepodge. But again, they're all riflemen. Yeah. We got several people taken. I would say about 12, any, about 12 to 15 tankers were taken. And that had everybody's hair up on their arms because, oh, my God, the last thing you wanted to be was, if you've been in tanks, is to be a grunt. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing grunts wanted to be were tankers, so it, it worked out okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, these people, so now we have, a, we have a shortage when the door opens again in, in this NCO class, and they call six names, and they're all tankers. We're told to go back to our unit. And I'm on a bus within Camp Pendleton and get dropped off at Las Flores. Right. And look across, the. It, we're on a hill, mm -hmm. looking across at the tank ramp where all the tanks are parked, there is a flurry of stuff going on. People running here and there. There are tractor trailers all lined up uh, in front of the tanks. Uh, and you realize, oh, shit, some, something is going on. Right. And then you find out, uh, as you report into your unit, I was changed from Charlie Company to Bravo Company. Uh, and that you start finding out what your, where your news situation is. I, didn't, I wasn't one of those called up for the grunts, luckily. Yeah. And uh, the tractor trailers were filled with stuff we have been waiting on for a year that were missing on the tanks searchlights and oh, all the uh, fording gear so that you could make a water landing right. and uh, so forth. Um, so then we find out that the 27th Marines are gone. They flown over to Vietnam. We were leaving in two days, I think, and we would be leaving by ship. It's the only way you can get a tank over there. Sure. Yeah. So we had a company of tanks, a retriever, three flame tanks, and three three platoons of gun tanks, oh. and they were all on. Uh, we were all on the USS Thomaston. Okay. It's three weeks to get there, and luckily we had a chance to uh, acclimate to the weather coming from. San, well, roughly San Diego, uh, Camp Pendleton, and going over to hot, humid Vietnam, it was a benefit. Mm -hmm. So we, land, we landed in Vietnam, and then we drove to the assigned 
units that we would be supporting of the 27th Marines. So since we were in uh, the, the 2nd Platoon of Bravo Company 5th Tanks, we would be supporting 227. Right. Second, second battalion, 27th Marines. Right. The other two platoons would would be assigned to uh, the other uh, battalions of the of the 27th Marines. Right. So, when we got there, the these grunts, or now that they're grunts, mm-hmm. we pulled into their combat base, and. All of a sudden, these people come running out of nowhere. All the ex-tankers came running to us saying, get me out of here. Get me back in tanks. Because <laughs> they had been patrolling and doing all the horrible things that uh, yeah. you have to do as a grunt. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there were some tears. I mean, it was serious. So... We were there about a month at this uh, compound. Mm-hmm. It was a. Uh, it had its own organic artillery. It was a good-sized compound that held two twenty-seven. We would go out on road sweeps with them every morning, and that's where I got into my first firefight. Oh. And as we were doing the road sweep, we got ambushed. Because they were always great at picking the right spot. Sure. It was a bend in the road, and the road, the right side of the road went up about six feet oh. at a 45 degree angle. So it was difficult to turn a tank and then climb a steep hill like that. You're going to come up right. bow high going slow because of the tank can't run over that type of height fast and you're going to expose the whole bottom of the tank if you do that you're going to get an rpg right in the belly so we had to stay on the road to support these guys and it lasted for about 10 minutes um it's the first time i saw christmas lights in the trees not realizing these were rifles firing at us Uh, as a gunner, which was my job on this tank. Mm -hmm. um, It was the first time looking through the periscope that I saw somebody shooting at us. And so there was a hesitation for a second until you realize, oh my God, they're shooting at us. So you take them under fire and after about 10 minutes, it was over and I stuck my head up out of the tank because mm-hmm. it had quieted down and I was trying to take a breather. And coming towards me is two men carrying a poncho with a body in it. Oh. I will never forget that moment because the body was face down. This guy had long hair and I can't imagine how as strict as the Marine Corps was then. Uh, that you could have hair that was, you know, three, it was at least three inches long. And as they were carrying him, the hair is moving with every footstep that he was, that they were bounding with the feet of the guys carrying the the poncho. Mm -hmm. 
And I will never forget that scene. And that was my first real taste of, so this is what it's about. So the name we had, uh, our crew, we had a naming session of what are we going to name our tank? Uh All the tanks had names on, most of them had names on the gun tubes. Some of them were funny. Some were real serious and, you know, I'm God. And I don't know, there were a whole host of names. And I I wasn't the serious type. I was one of the, let's have a little fun with this. Mm -hmm. And so my bid one, after I explained it to the crew, (laughs) the name of the tank was Better Living Through Canister. Canister was a giant shotgun round that we relied on more than any other round in this tank. And it was, it would just knock a swath through uh, elephant grass, which would get about 10, six feet tall. And if you don't know what's in the grass ahead of you, so you'd fire a canister around and clear this path right in front of you it was it was almost godlike when you see the this this hand of unseen hand just uh, plow down all this all the grass in front of you and so we lived on that it was around the canister around was designed for taking on mass attacks of people which was a lot of what we faced right uh, to get back to the name, Better Living Through Canister, the Better Living part comes from a, a, an advertisement that, w- that was running for a couple of years uh, on TV and in print uh, from DuPont. And their jingle, now it's not a jingle, their byline was Better Living Through Chemistry. And that's where that's where the play on that name came from for our tank. Right, right. Uh, I was there for six months. Mm-hmm. I was a gunner the entire time. Um, there had been no, numerous things, uh, support units we had worked with. We worked with the 7th Marines a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked with, uh, I even worked with, oddly enough, we, well, I, of course, we worked with the 27th Marines. Right. And when I say work with, we were in the field with the grunts, right. giving them support. Right. And I also worked with, oddly enough, the 26th Marines. Huh. They were actually the first unit of the 5th Marine Division to go over to Vietnam, and I think it was in early 67. And they went over with their tanks. Well, the 3rd Marine Division swallowed their support units up and took them. So you didn't hear much about anything with 5th tanks and the 26th Marines. The 26th Marines, for those who don't know, were the Marines that... We're, we're stationed, stations, a funny word, but they weren't stationed. <laughs> they, they were in the gun sites at Khe Sanh of more North Vietnamese artillery than probably any place around other than Kantian. Right. And they took incoming like crazy. Yeah. 
So when you tell people, well, I worked with the 26 Marines, and you tell them your unit, well, our unit was outside Da Nang, about 150 miles south right. of Quezon. Right. How did you work with the 26 Marines? Well, the story is, when they finally got relieved and abandoned Quezon, they came down south and worked with us outside Da Nang. And we got to work with them. And that is the first inkling that I got of what the difference was between the 3rd Marine Division, which worked up on the DMZ, and the 1st Marine Division, which worked outside the Da Nang area. Right. Um, Pretty salty. Oh, they were full of of themselves. And because they had done a magnificent job. And they were like I, we thought, you know, they thought the war was the same in both areas. And there was a bit of a difference. And when we worked with the 26th Marines, you couldn't get them to move. There were some, the 1st Marine Division area was so full of mines and booby traps, which they weren't used to. Right, right. That they didn't know how to handle it. And they would hardly move they lost a lot of men due to the booby traps and it took them a while but they finally became proficient uh i think we might have worked with them for a month and and then they were lucky enough to go home in august so when you say booby traps can you describe a couple of those just so that the audience knows what you're talking about Oh, well, the ones that we as tankers looked for were booby traps in the trees where your aerials could hit a low tree limb and snag a wire that would uh, detonate at the, at the height of, the, of, a, of your turret, which would take out the tank commander and, and the loader if, he was, if his head was up as well. Good Lord. Uh, Mines were a huge thing with us. There were, there, I didn't know anybody in the first, first tanks and, and fifth tanks that hadn't hit a mine. Yeah. There were always dozen, a half a dozen tanks at uh, the work, what do you call it, battalion? Um, oh, I don't know. The, the work. Mechanics. The wor- yeah. Uh, with, with half their wheels gone on one side. And we're waiting for wheels or waiting for more track, which was a real problem, trying to get track. And uh, so they were quite effective in taking out vehicles. But we learned to work with fewer vehicles. Um, The other problem, as far as when you say about booby traps, there were most of them were either wire, you know, it'd be a very fine wire across the ground that they were looking to snag on a foot or a boot. And uh, that was totally new to the men of the 26 Marines. Um, And mines in general were a surprise to them. So they would step on these bouncing betties. That was a mine that would... It was a pressure release mine. In other words, you could step on the mine and put pressure on the tripping mechanism, but it didn't trip until you took that foot off of there. And then it would fire a round up to about waist high and explode, hoping to take out not just the guy stepping on it, but all the men around him. 
and uh, they were very scary. So they had some stuff to get used to, and I would I would learn a lot more as because I was probably one of the few people that served in first tanks, where the fifth tanks, first tanks adopted us. So I worked with outside Da Nang, and then six months later, I was transferred up north to third tanks. And all of a sudden, when I took over, they saw my service record and said, well, you should be a tank commander immediately. And I was made one. Yes. And I got to, and the tank was new. Yeah. It was, that's a whole nother story, but it was a new tank, which was really unusual. Yeah. And it was great to have when you see it. But the tank, is, of course, was already loaded and everything. I was the new guy coming on. Mm-hmm. And... I got in the tank. First thing I did was look at the ammunition mix. And I called over the loader and I said, who, who, whose idea was it to put this ammo in this tank? And uh, he gave an answer. I, either it was the crew or the previous tank commander. Right. I said, this is all wrong. Where is the canister? That was my big interest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was life-saving. Yeah. And they were three or four rounds versus in the uh, down south outside Da Nang. That's all you carried in the ready rack, mm-hmm. just about. Mm-hmm. And some uh, HE, high explosive rounds. Right. In this take, in this case, it was all full of flechette, uh, flechette rounds, right. which I'll explain those in a minute. Good. Okay. And HE rounds. Mm-hmm but to a greater extent than anything we ever used down south. Mm-hmm. And very few canister rounds, which was disappointing to me at the time. Yeah. Now, let me explain flechette. It was a new round that had just come out in 68. Mm-hmm. It, was, it had a plastic nose cone on it mm-hmm. that it was almost like a food timer. You could turn the nose... Mm-hmm and set it to a number that was at the bottom of the little line that was on the nose. And the numbers going around the projectile at, up near the nose were, yard, were meters. Right. And you would set the round to where you want the round to go off. Right. It was very different than any other round. It was the only round that had that type of timing mechanism. So if you saw enemy 500 yards out in front of you, you could take them on and the round would go out to about 400 yards, explode and send a wall of darts, 4,400 darts in the same direction. And you could, you could hit a mass of people that way. You couldn't do that with canister because canister, like a shotgun was very short range. You know, it was, 200 yards at max. So it was a unusual round. It was new to me. And I grew, I grew to finally like it. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I like the idea of you could reach out and touch someone. Um, the problem was the darts were so small, they were only like an inch and a half long, that all you, all you kind of did was make the guys angry who it was aimed at. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, unless you got a lucky start that happened to hit him in the head or in the heart or something, but usually it, it seemed like all we did was piss him off. <laughs> Yeah. But it felt good. Yeah. Well, it, it could tack people to trees. I know that. So when I when I got checked into the third tank battalion, having come up uh, and then being named a tank commander, mm -hmm. uh, they said, "I said, where's my tank?" This is at uh, company headquarters. They said, "Oh, well, you're up at uh, C two C four." Oh, okay. I said, what is C4? <laughs> I said, that's uh, an explosive. No, 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 no. This is this is C4, which is a number for an outpost that's right on the ocean, about five miles south of the DMZ. Right. I said, okay. And I took a trip, had, thumbing my way either on trucks and getting a, uh, a, Mike, a Navy Mike boat to take me to the oh. Quaviette. And finally got a Amtrak. There were a couple of Amtraks going up to C4. And so I was able to hike a ride like that. Most people think, you know, okay, I'm getting sent to a unit. And, you know, the, the truck is going to be right outside the tent to take you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, <laughs> you're on your own, bud. <laughs> Which really surprised me. Yeah. So I got up to C4 and come in for the first time. I'm the new guy and they don't know I have, I've had combat experience. They just think, oh, this is a new tank commander. Oh God, what next? And luckily the guy, a guy who was there, he and I had gone through tank school and we were best friends was, was our, our, president of this of our organization now was john ware right he was able to give me credibility to my three to the three men of my crew that this guy knows what he's doing yeah. Yeah. and i didn't have an awkward learning curve with them right. in fact i was the one that was learning like the ammunition mix and a few other things like that i also taught them a few things from down south mm -hmm. was you never sat in a tank at night without a round in the chamber. Yep. Yep. And that was forbidden in third tanks. And they would the crew rebel, not rebel, but they said, Oh no, we, you can't do that here. We're not allowed to do that. I said, oh, BS to that. We're we're doing it because it's I know what can happen. Yeah. And I said, whoever has got watch, you've got the you've got the pistol grip on the tank that can fire that gun you don't even ask yep. unless you think you got time so i can get there yeah. so from there they said uh well you're not where you, when i got to, uh, being in an ocean view now they said well you, this isn't where we operate out of you're further north i said further north you can't get much further north <laughs> oh yes you can <laughs> And we had to go five miles up the beach to get to a little fire base. And it wasn't even a fire base. It had no organic uh, artillery or anything. Uh -huh. it, it was called Ocean View. Right, right. And it was nothing but a couple of sand dunes, a wooden tower about 25 feet off the ground, 
And the purpose of this base was not only to, to stop infiltration coming down the beach, it was to view into the DMZ. And they had a team there of Anglo Marine Anglico. Now, that was an acronym for, let's see, Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company, I think. Ah, okay. And they would, they would call in gunfire, sometimes from a nearby fire base, right. but most of the time during the day, it was all from the USS New Jersey. And that was a hell of an experience is to watch that giant battleship. She was only five, maybe five miles offshore, but she looked, it, it looked like it was all the, the three turrets that made up that battleship almost took up half the ship. It, it was amazing. And she was firing 16 inch shells into the DMZ. Yeah. And uh, that was our main goal. The other people that were there was a company of first Amtraks. People don't understand why first Amtraks operated with the 3rd Marine Division. But somewhere along the way, the two units got changed. And first Amtrak supported the 3rd Marine Division. And third Amtrak supported the 1st Marine Division. It, one of those crazy things of war. Yeah. So they were called Amgrunts. They were Amtrackers that also did everything that grunts do. They patrolled at night. They set up ambushes at night. Um, they were every bit of uh, being a grunt, but they had this big machine that could take 20 people. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing about when you, you, can, you can tell a, a, a Marine Amtrak right away, if you see films or pictures, is that when you see a bit long, a big vehicle with 20 men sitting on top of it, that's the Marine Amtrak. Yeah. Nobody went inside the Amtrak because the Amtrak's nickname for that, that we used were shaken bakes. Mm -hmm. They had, I don't know how many gallons, it had to be at least 200 gallons of gasoline in the bottom of that thing, uh, that if you were inside, you're going to get cooked with it. Yeah. So that's why everyone rode on top. People would say, well, why are they riding on top when they're getting shot at? It was better getting shot at than hitting a mine, which was yeah. very frequent. Yeah. Hitting a mine and the whole thing blows up. Yeah. So. That was a story on those. Well, let me so let me, I, ba let me back you up for just a second. So sure, just your ocean view. Uh, yep, you you were basically a tripwire. Yes. So that that everybody else knew when you got when you got into the shit that they needed to scramble and get going. It's coming to you. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, and uh, what's we never got hit while I was there, which it surprised me. But I think what, what stopped it was every night at the same time as, as the sun was starting to go down, go down um, they had what was called a mad minute. And everyone that had a gun, a tank, uh, an Amtrak, 
all the, the, the I think there were only 30 grunts there uh-huh. and everyone opened up on no specific target just right. to let them know here we are yeah. and at this little compound was two of the best weapons I have ever, I have ever seen and they were army dusters oh yeah they yeah. they were actually let me figure out how to say this. They were they were uh, they were a chassis from a smaller model tank, the M40. I think it was the M40, the Walker Bulldog. Right. And on top, where they, where you would expect to see a turret, was an open area with mounted on top of it was two 40 millimeter what used to be what we used to call as kids pom pom guns. Right. These the guns you see in Navy movies that are going back and forth, firing out these 40 millimeter projectiles that, uh, and it was an anti-aircraft gun. Yeah. That thing was incredible. And I give that, a, uh, one of the big reasons why we never got hit. And I think the final reason was the Jersey was offshore. Yeah. yeah. She would go at night. She would go over the horizon. So you couldn't see her. But she fired, and you'd see the horizon light up. Yeah. And if you looked up in the very dark sky, you could see the the shell cruising over you into the DMZ. It was re- it was really fun to watch. Yeah. And during the day, she would come in much closer. Well, tell tell the audience what it sounded like because the sound was. Yeah. Um, at night it was a, a very distant boom. And during the day, it was it. It was a boom that got your attention. Yeah. It, yeah. And it was almost the bell ring, bell ringing for, let's get up on our turret and sit and watch this, because yeah. uh, it was just amazing to watch. Really? I, I was very fortunate to have seen that. Not many got and people knew she was there while they were in Vietnam, but they hadn't seen it. And I was fortunate to be one of the few of a small group to have seen it yeah we were on the receiving end of that not directly (laughs) but but uh they they were firing essentially danger close oh they were huge shells yeah and it would lift a tank off the ground i believe it yeah yeah um she also had several five inch twin five inch gun turrets along the side of the ship uh, that we also that also fired. Now, when she wasn't there, now she I guess she would go off to get refueled and whatever. Right. A Coast Guard cutter would come in and sit there. Oh. And she was there to protect us. Yeah. And uh, she had a just one five-inch gun, as I recall. Yeah. So we had some protection, but it and one string of barbed wire. But it, <laughs> it's <laughs> one string, but it wasn't, you didn't feel real protected. If you felt like you were left out there in the naked. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I say you were tripwire. Now, what made it the worst was I was there in October, November. Okay. And it was the call on November 1st, actually on October 31st, it was announced by the president that there would be a bombing halt 
where we would not bomb the North at all. You and in those that were on the ground, the troops could not fire into North Vietnam unless you were fired upon. Right. Well, they weren't stupid enough to fire on us. They, they, the North Vietnamese used that quiet period to restock yep. all their stuff and with no cost or risk to them. Right. And it was the night of October 31st that I was standing watch it around midnight on the tank. And if you looked, our gun tube faced due east. Right. East, yeah, uh, no, west, due west, right. into Viet into Vietnam. Behind us would be the ocean. Right. If you turned your head and looked due north, you, the coast actually went north and then swung out into the ocean aways, uh, about ten miles away. Mm -hmm. So you could see quite a bit of North Vietnam uh, easily. Mm -hmm. And that night, a set of traffic lights in a huge line of a convoy. It took us a while to figure out what it was, but it was North Vietnamese trucks filled with, we can only guess what, yeah. that it was gonna, that we would see the next day or the next week, yeah. what was in the trucks as it was shot at us. Yeah. <laughs> and you couldn't do a thing about it. And that was the single worst point for me, for my two tank crews, they, the demoralization was incredible. Yeah. And my job as a tank section leader was I had the two tank crews I had to keep from getting into the doldrums. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it was hard to do when you see, when you sit there and watch that yeah. and you go, why am I here? Yeah. My country has just sold me out. Yeah. You want me to, to die? Uh, so you can you can have this silly bombing halt, which was a joke, yeah. and it was supposed to get them back to the peace table. Well, what was the incentive to get back to the peace table? Yeah. You just gave me a free out where I could bring anything I want down to the DMZ. Yeah. It was insane. Well, most you know it's interesting because almost everybody thinks about resupply coming down Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is you know, yes all the way you know as far west as you uh, far. Oh, east. way into way into Laos, yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's yeah, that's interesting. So then, when we did go into the DM after the bombing halt rule was lifted, we on an op went into the DMZ after the bombing halt, and we found all these gun pits for huge artillery pieces. All the ammunition was sitting in the in these gun pits. Ooh. The guns hadn't come across yet. And that was, Ooh. that was, you knew what's coming. Yeah. And when I mentioned that, that was a, another lesson I learned between the first and third Marine divisions as to how the, how they fought the war. Yeah. The NVA had artillery right across the river of the DMZ right. and they would shell our bases like Kantian, Quezon, uh, Dong Ha, mm -hmm. uh, and, we could, we could never find their guns because they were in North Vietnam, right. well hidden. Right. And that caused a problem when you were on an operation sweeping into the DMZ or even, even 
even if you were even in northern Vietnam, because they would fire on you. Yeah. And you know, and consequently, in third tanks, you never had anything on top of the turret. Uh, nothing, nothing additional. Nothing you would. You didn't want to stick your head out of the tank because you could easily have an airburst yeah. take you out. Yeah. Well, they didn't have that problem in First Marine Division because the heaviest thing they had were big rockets, which were area weapons, and uh, mortars. And so you would see, you can always tell which division a tank was from. If you see a tank with a 50 caliber machine gun mounted on top of the turret uh, where the tank commander was, uh, that was a tank from first, first tanks. They didn't have that air burst problem of big artillery. Right. So you could, in some ways it was great. In some ways it was too dangerous for me. Yeah. I would, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, but you saw a lot of first tanks, fifth tanks never did it. Right. Yeah. And, um, they lost a lot of tank commanders, uh, due to that. But you couldn't even think of doing that in uh, third tanks. That explains that. Sure, thank you. I, I was that. I was not aware of that. Thank you. Uh, and you know the pro And you know in, there was an inherent problem with the fifty caliber machine gun. The way it was mounted inside the tank. Yeah. It, it was in this. We called it a cupola. It was mounted sideways. Right. And. The most you could shoot at a time was 50 rounds. Then you had to reload it. Right. And you tore up your knuckles trying to get the bullets into the gun. Yes. It, it was horrible. Yeah. I ended up finding out, I did some research a few years ago, how that came about, because it should never have uh, gone through uh, approval as a piece of part of a tank, the way it was so poorly designed. Yeah. Come to find out it was designed by Boeing. <laughs> Boeing, if if you know anything about, say, fighter aircraft, which all used 50 caliber machine guns during World War II, right. all those guns laid on their side. Oh. And the reason for that was the shells, the, the spent shells could fall out the bottom of the wing. Oh. And for some reason, they did that with us. I think the argument was to keep the tank silhouette as low as they could and not be a bigger target than sometimes we were. Yeah. But it was a terrible system. And that's why first tanks also mounted them up top. Uh, it was a great weapon for me as a tank commander. And even, you know, my time as a gunner, yeah. the best weapon on that tank was that 50 caliber, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the side mounted, we, what we found was the side mount jammed an awful lot. Oh, absolutely. You had to have a, if you were a tank commander in third Marine division, you could find, I will bet on every tank, a big screwdriver yep. yeah. jammed down in the, between some of the com communication wires on the turret wall. So you could grab it quick and pry out the jammed, uh, <laughs> machine gun, the uh, links. Yeah. Yeah. It was a stupid design. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, um, well, I've been thinking about it. That tank, when I when I got to this brand new, almost brand new tank uh, in Third Tank Battalion and checked into my company, which was C or Charlie Company. Excuse me. 
<laughs> when I checked in, um, I'm sorry, I just had a mind slip. That's okay. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, okay, I got it. When I checked into Charlie Company, uh, I was assigned to this uh, platoon, again, that was up at C4, and there was a new tank sitting there. Mm -hmm. it, looked, it didn't even look like it was a month old as it was. Mm -hmm. The odd thing was it was unnamed. So I did what we did on the last tank. I said, let's have a collection, let's have a collection of ideas among the crew, mm -hmm. what we can name this. And we got, there was all sorts of ideas, and most of them were dumb. And when I came from California, I, I was in California for a year, as I said, at Pendleton. Mm -hmm. uh, the big thing in, in that area as a civilian was surfing. And the, the mantra that every surfer had was, pray for surf. Uh, yes. So, I, right. I cha so as I changed it, like I did the, the less pray as I did for a better living through canister. Uh -huh. I changed it to praying for slack because the other common expression was give me some slack, man. Yeah. It's, this is too much. Cut me some slack. And that's the way it felt, you know, I, let's pray for slack and take a break from this. Yeah. Yeah. It was a hit with the grunts. Every grunt you worked with, would yell up at us and say, just say, cool name, man. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it is. It's, it is a cool name. But go ahead. Go ahead. So that is a quick summation. I did have a funny incident where I was out with three tanks. I was, the again, the a corporal as a section leader. And... It was a beautiful area where the, you got up on top of the ridge and it was just like a wheat field. It wasn't wheat, but three foot high grass that just went, it seemed like forever. It was beautiful. And I sat there for a second and, and just to take it all in. And suddenly through the, through the grass, this line is, is going across in front of me, maybe 200 yards out and I'm, I'm thinking what the hell is this and it was almost like out of the movie of Jurassic Park or one of the series where the, di the, the dinosaurs are chasing the people through the grass and all you see is the grass moving all right it was just like that and it then got to I got I got to finally see uh, I had the gunner put the gun on the main gun on it as he tracked it. It was a tiger. Oh wow! And and being a stupid, naive, twenty-one-year-old, I just felt I had to have a tiger skin. Oh! I'm I'm so glad I didn't. I'm, we we laid the gun on it, and first thing I had to do was call in, and and our and and company headquarters would monitor our radios. Yeah. And I came, I, I started to say, uh, we've got a tiger in front of us. Well, tiger was the code name for tanks in third tank battalion. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you wonder, you wouldn't say uh, I see a, a tank, you'd say I see a tiger. Yeah. And that's the way they heard it back in company was he sees a tiger. It must it must be an enemy tiger. Yeah. Because yeah. that was the big fear up north was you could come across a uh, Russian tank. Yeah. We saw their tracks. We never, we never saw the actual tank, right. and it got all screwed up as to what I was looking at. Until finally, somebody comes on the radio and says, "We have some fast movers on the way." In other words, jets. And I said, "You don't understand. It's a tiger, stripes, <laughs> claws." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. It was a funny moment. Yeah. Okay, Bob. Go ahead and continue to do because people say well you know what was the combat like and we really haven't talked about that too much and the one thing i'd like to do is go back to when i was in fifth tanks attached to first tank battalion in outside da nang Uh Uh, we were about 20 miles southwest of da nang and we got called to fill a to support the Seventh Marines. It was it was like a thirty minute notice, mm-hmm. and somehow our platoon sergeant, uh, Staff Sergeant Mbizi, got a helicopter from the twenty seventh from our twenty seventh Marine Combat Base where we were sitting, mm-hmm. uh, that he could fly over this area that he knew would be that he was told would be the area of operation. And it looked like an island. There was the way the river had split and gone around it and meandered around the around this plot of land. Mm-hmm. At times, it was an island if there was a rainstorm or a month or during the monsoon. Right. Otherwise, it was just uh, attached to dry land. Right. But it was referred to as Goynoy Island. Right. Yes. And that is where this operation called Allenbrook was going to take place. Oh, right. Now, at the, ti- the time we went out, it hadn't even been named yet. There was no name for this sweep. Yeah. And it had started with a tank that was, a tank commander was killed, and we were, we were raced to the scene, if you will, to support the remaining tanks that were on Goynoy Island. It had a horrible reputation. Right. Uh, it was a place that you knew you were going to see stuff and be under a lot of fire. Very few Marine units had ever gone into it. It was also the headquarters of a NVA division. And a lot of the rockets that were shot at Da Nang came from the, came from that area. So there was a real reason to go in there. It was the most intense three weeks of my life or our lives. Um, it was, we were uh, on a sweep with the 7th Marines, and we were getting, we were taking a lot of incoming and being shot up a lot. Uh, we were facing a railroad berm that was about 20 feet high. And on the berm were the North Vietnamese. And down below was us approaching it, and we really got our butts shot up. 
and you couldn't you couldn't assault the berm. It was just too heavily defended. And we had been calling for air support all day. And late that afternoon, two A4 Skyhawks showed up. And these were little planes, but boy, they were loaded. Uh, it's amazing what they ca- could carry. Yeah. And uh, they they could see the situation we were in. And they did several runs of napalm. Uh, well, we, 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 we actually called it nape and snake. It was nape was the napalm snake were the, the bombs that were being dropped were snake eyes. Um, and they, they were retarded with, with, uh, these metal wings that would come out the back to slow the bomb down to give the plane a chance to get out of the area. Right. And so that was a, a snake eye. And they worked that area to death. And we were able to, or the grunts were able to assault it. We could only shoot at the very top and the area that faced us. So we weren't, we weren't worth a lot being a direct fire weapon. Probably what you needed were mortars yeah. or a howitzer. They'd had an arc to it. Yeah. yeah. So... At the last, the last A4 that flew, that dropped its load, made a circle and came back in behind us mm-hmm. and dropped down so low. I, I, I want to say it wasn't 50 feet off the ground. Wow. Went right over our tank. The aerials were, were whipping back and forth. Uh, and he pulls up over the berm and does a victory roll. Uh, it was the it was the greatest thing because everybody the grunts the grunt everyone was yelling around us the grunts were yelling every time they'd drop a bomb yeah. they'd be yelling get some get some and because these they they had such a horrible day and they were taking such casualties it was you know finally Christmas has arrived that yeah. we're being saved out of this yeah yeah. So the next the next day after they they took they took the berm of course we did yeah. and the next morning we were to continue on further past the berm into a very wet area okay. and there was only one way in it for tanks and it was a railroad overpass remember now this berm used to have a railroad track on top of it but the bridge was still there the rails were gone so we could we could go under the bridge and into this area that they were moving into and as we went through bob and Beasy, who was our tank commander just said oh it's going to be hell getting out of here and his words were no were, were very prophetic that night we got into position in this wet area. It was too wet for us to proceed is what happened. And the grunts didn't want to go anywhere without us. Yeah, yeah. So they decided, okay, we'll turn around and go through the bridge again. And there was five tanks with us. And they all had to go through that bridge. Well, Bob and Beasy was a platoon sergeant. He was directing everybody, mm-hmm. and he ordered one of his 
tanks to go through the bridge first. But he demanded that the infantry sweep with mine detectors under that bridge because we, right. you you could bet your house there was going to be something there. Yeah, They're, they weren't dumb enough to let us to 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 use that opportunity, uh, or to not use that opportunity to to get some get one of us. Yeah. So they sweeped it. They said, "Oh, there's nothing here." And Bob got furious, jumped off the tank, and said, "You sweep that area again." God damn it. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a mine there. Yeah. So they went through it again. We think they turned the mine detectors off. Oh, Jesus. Because they were so mad. They were probably mad at us for yelling at them. Yeah. And we were the command tank, if you will, as being the platoon sergeant. Right. So he, he sent one of his tanks through, one of our other tanks through first. And, of course, it did exactly what we thought. It, bl it blew up. We had to tow it out of there. It took several hours. Well, during those several hours, the North Vietnamese are getting ready for us to come through that bridge as a group, right. which we finally did. We were towing the damaged tank. Right. Our tank was. And we were coming out through the, through a, through the underpass, the overpass, and there was a tree line that ran to on our left side, ran for hundreds of yards, uh, parallel to the direction we were going, perpendicular to the uh, railroad berm. Right. And you could see them running through the tree line. Very first time I'd ever actually seen the enemy moving in position, and all our turrets went to that direction. And the, the fight started. Um, Bob and Beasy says I killed 80 to 120 North Vietnamese. They were just running in, in mass formations, right. trying to run to a to get to a location down the line with their brothers. Right. And uh, it was an opportunity I have never seen since at that time where you saw them and you could just let go on them with the machine guns in particular. Yeah. And... We took a lot of them out. Yeah. Um, we set up. We set up a perimeter up against the berm again, where we had spent the previous night. Mm -hmm. um, we were virtually out of ammunition. Uh, machine guns were both almost gone. The, the, there was only one or two main gun rounds left. We couldn't get any helicopters for this whole operation because they had shot down several who that were trying to resupply us and get the dead out. Right. So we became a column. We uh, they they wanted to get the dead and get and get supplies, and they put the dead in a couple of Amtraks and. We and three other tanks mm -hmm. formed a column with a platoon of grunts on top of the Amtraks, and we went back probably about seven miles to this little base that we had started this operation from. Mm -hmm. That was our intention. We came across the tree line, one of many, and we were doing something that was called, and I never saw this up north, by the way, uh, we were doing something called recon by fire. Yeah. You'd come up to a tree line and instead of 
waiting for an ambush to get tripped and you'd be in the middle of it in the exact spot they wanted you in. When you started firing uh, on the tree line, their immediate reaction was the ambush has been tripped, that they know we're here. And they would start firing from where they were. Well, that's about all the time we have for part one of episode 26. Bob will return with part two next time. You have been a great listening audience, and as always, we appreciate you and all you mean to us. Next time, in part two of episode 26 with Bob Peavy, we will really get into the proverbial shit. Until next time.